All right, I hope you brought your Bibles tonight. Um, hey, if there's seats, can you raise your hand if there's empty seats at your table? Okay, those of you in the back, if you're looking for a place, there's even one up here in the splash zone. Um, bring, a, bring an umbrella. All right, a couple weeks ago, Mark Zakovich um, talked about the church. And if my notes are correct... Um, He told us that we love the church because it's the bride of Christ, it's the body of Christ, and it's the beauty of Christ. And of course, all of you remember all of that, right? Of course. Excellent. Well, we're just going to build on that. He asked me tonight um, to take that um, a couple steps further and and to expand on on the church. And what I want to do tonight is to be very, very practical. Um, I want you to be encouraged by your role in the church, challenged by your role in the church, and to leave your understanding that we need you. Grace Church needs you, and you need Grace Church, or whatever church you go to in the future. If you would, turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. I want to start by giving you a description um, that Christ uses to describe you and I as his people. First uh, Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 9, says this, But you are a chosen family, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. And I don't want you to miss that. That's God's description, the creator of the universe. Jesus Christ, his son, who came and lived a perfect life, who died for you and I to save us, so that he could then call us his chosen family, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people for God's own possession. Why? Why did he do that? Well, it says, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him, of Jesus Christ, who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy but now you have received mercy. There in a few verses is a, just a phenomenal um, concentration of our position as believers in the church and why the church exists, which is to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you and I out of darkness into his marvelous light. If you want to read about the darkness, you can read Isaiah 59, among other places. It's a great description. It's a sad description of you and I before Christ saved us. Blind man in a dark room. I heard H.P. Charles define philosophy the other day at the men's conference, um, that philosophy is a, a blind man in a dark room looking for a black cat that doesn't exist. That's the description of the darkness that, that we've been saved out of. As a believer, you've been grafted and drafted into a growing, vibrant, and functioning organism called the church. You're part of a family, a priesthood, a nation, a people, all so that we will proclaim the excellencies of Christ, both through what we say and how we live. And we proclaim those excellencies by talking about what he's done for us. And when we need to reflect on that and consider, do I have any obligations as a result of that? If you want to look at a great summary of what the Bible has to say about the church, we have to start in Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. I know you're familiar with this passage. I just want to make a few observations. And let me just tell you where we're going tonight. I want to give an overview, an over site, if you will, of what the Bible teaches about the church. And then I'm going to put you to work. We're going to have discussion groups in the middle tonight. I need help. I didn't have time to, I'm kidding. I had plenty of time to prepare. (laughs) But what I want to do is have you get, you do some work before then we go through the rest of the teaching time to prepare all of us um, for what the Bible says, because I'm not really probably going to say a whole lot tonight that isn't something you already know. might be new to some of you. But I want us tonight to reflect together on the gift that is the church. And in Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 16, there is a description of a conversation, and Simon Peter answered 
And what he answered was Jesus Christ's question of his disciples, who do you say I am? And Simon Peter responded and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Okay, so let's review that for a minute. That statement, you are the Son, you are Christ, the Son of the living God, is the foundation upon which the church is built. That's what the church stands on, that's what the church is about. And just to reinforce it, you don't have to turn there, but in 1 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 14, Paul is writing to a young man who's pastoring a church, and he's just talked about who should be the deacons and who should be the elders, what are their qualifications. And at the end of that, he says, I write so that you'll know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. There's three descriptions of the church here. The household of God, which is the church, ecclesia of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. What did we just hear is the pillar and support of the truth? The fact that Jesus is Jesus Christ is the son of the living God. And in fact, Paul then says in 1 Timothy 3, to make sure there's no question about that, Peter's not the foundation. Jesus Christ is the foundation. It says, he goes on to say in 1 Timothy 3, see if you can figure out who he's talking about here. He who is revealed in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Who is that? It's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the foundation of the church. And this passage in Matthew 16 is very interesting. Because that one phrase that Jesus says that I will build my church and the gates of Hades will never prevail against it says loads about the church. We could spend weeks on it. I speaks to possession. This is Jesus talking. Will. There's a plan. I will. What's the action? What's the next word? Build. Jesus Christ is saying I will Build my ownership. The church is Christ's. He's the head of the church. I will build my ecclesia. And it's important to note that that word church there, it doesn't refer to Zoom church. Doesn't even refer to Bible study, although Bible study is part of it. It refers to a regular physical gathering of people together for the purpose of worshiping Jesus Christ. He uses that word on purpose. It's the local gathering. I will build my church, and then there's a promise, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. There's two promises there. The obvious promise is I'm not going to let hell overtake the church. The church is permanent. The other promise that's implicit there is obviously someone's going to be attacking the church, aren't they? Otherwise, why would Christ need to make that promise? So with that as a backdrop, we're going to go through what the Bible teaches about the church. There's seven of these. We're going to go through them really quick. The first one's up there. Christ is the head of the church. I was just talking about that. He's the architect. He's the builder. He's the owner. He's the Lord of the church. He created it. It is his. He makes the rules. Church at Grace Church looks the way it does because we try to track very closely, if not precisely, as precisely as we can with how Christ says he wants church to look. Why? Because it's Christ's church. It's not my church. It's not your church. Although we like to say that, don't we? It is our church, but you understand what I'm saying. Christ is the head of the church. We have an obligation to see church, the ecclesia, the way Christ sees the church. Number two, the church exists to glorify God. We preach, we teach, we serve, we worship together. Christ, the son of the living God, the foundation, the creator of the church. And all of that by Christ's design happens 
in the ecclesia, in the local church. That is where believers come together to glorify God together. That's how Christ said he wants his church to function. Number three, the church is the body of Christ. The church is the body of Christ. It's the universal church. If you go back, if you think back to 1 Peter 2, that we're a family, a priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, the household of God, that speaks to every believer on this earth so that you can go from here to the other side of the world and sit down with a group of believers and you have everything in common. You're part of the body of Christ. There's a common bond of unity with believers of all nationalities, languages, politics, ethnicity, geography. The unity is that Jesus is the Christ, son of the living God. And we believe and trust that he took upon himself our sins so that we could take on his righteousness and we will spend eternity together. And until we get there, we get to do it here. We're part of the body of Christ. Number four, church membership is in the Bible. Identity with the local church is biblical. And I'm not going to build um, this out in any length, but we're talking now not just the body of Christ, but the local church, the ecclesia, a physical, specific, local group of believers that meets regularly. That word ecclesia that Christ used in Matthew 16, the first time he ever talked about the church, was a word that existed before he used it. And it referred to regular physical gatherings of people, whether it's the city council or a court. That's how the word was used before Christ took that word and said, that's what the church is. And there is... There is the local church that Christians identify with and commit to. Every Christian is or should be accountable to a local church. That's normal Christianity. And we're going to see the effects of that not being the case in a few minutes. Number five, the fifth thing that the Bible teaches about the church is that Christ delegated um, oversight of his church to elders. The practice of the church, the polity or the leadership of the church, and the doctrine of the church is immune from outside influences. Why? Because Christ has defined the leadership, the practice, and the doctrine of the church, and he has delegated to elders. In your Bible, anytime you see the word elder, pastor, overseer, presbytery, that's all talking about the same people. And by God's design, his perfect design and his wisdom, he has identified elders as those who are um, given the responsibility of guarding and guiding and protecting and shepherding the church, the the local church. He can do this because in Romans 13, it says that there is no authority except from God and those which exist are established by God. And so in the Bible, he establishes that the oversight of the church, the shepherding of the church is delegated to elders. Number six, we already saw this, just to review, the church is indestructible. There is no other institution on this earth, a business, a government, anything that you can say is indestructible, but you can say that about the church. Because of the promise that Christ made, Christ's church will prevail, it will endure, and it will exist from Pentecost, back in Acts chapter 2, all the way to the rapture. And the church will be attacked relentlessly. You understand that. We understand that. But it has endured, and it will survive all of that. Christ said, I will build my church all the way to the end. And I will protect it all the way to the end. Number seven. The seventh thing that the um, Bible teaches about the church is that the church needs you and you need the church. And this is the one that we're going to drill down on tonight, spend a little bit of time on. 
The church is the vehicle for service and the exercise of spiritual gifts of the individual believer. It's the exclusive form for service in the building of, of the body of Jesus Christ in the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the primary vehicle of protecting you, you and me, of being protected from those forces outside the church. All of that work of the individual believer takes place in the church for the benefit of the church exclusively. Some of you have been in my new members class. You've heard me say this. Welcome to Grace Church. Now get to work. And that's what we want to talk about tonight. So what we're going to do um, for a few minutes here, I think we'll take probably 10, 15 minutes. First of all, get to know the people at your table. But then I want you to do address two questions, and they'll be up on the screen. I want you to um, consider together, what are the obligations of a believer in the church? What are your obligations? What's expected of you in the church? And then if you have time, it would be really good if you put these two together, but if you have time, find out in the Bible where does it say that. Okay? So, We've been given this amazing gift of the church, the amazing protection of the church, the fellowship of the church, the teaching in the church. All of that is for you. It's a gift from God. What are your obligations? What are my obligations as a believer? Take about 10, 15 minutes to do that. We'll come back together, and I'm going to have you call out to me some of those obligations, and then I'll tell you where you're wrong. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> And then we're going to go through my list, basically. But I bet you they're very similar, okay? So take about 15 minutes to do that. Okay. I'm going to interrupt you. And uh, I won't call on anybody, but why don't you go ahead and call out uh, what are some of the obligations of, of believers or what's expected of believers in the church? Okay, the Great Commission. I heard that. Don't forsake the assembling. Good. Spiritual gifts. Good. Hospitality. Sarah wants to have everybody to her house for dinner tomorrow night. All right. Hospitality. Be careful what you say here. No, I'm kidding. Over here. Anybody? I'm sorry. Prayer. Excellence. Good. Sanctification. Let's call it that. Unity. Unity. Membership. Okay. Humility. Okay. Okay. Discipleship. Believe in Jesus. Good for you. Yeah, that's a really good point. You know, the church is for believers. That's, I remember uh, in junior high at this church, I grew up at Grace Church, been around here off and on for 54 years, 53 years. Um, uh, but I remember the first time as a junior higher hearing my pastor say, church is for Christians. And it just cut me. I was like, whoa, 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 wait, what? That's what the church is for. So, yes, one of the obligations is to believe in Jesus. Good for you. Anything else? Submit to your elders. Submit to your elders what? What was the first? Glorify him. Glorify him with gladness. Good. I shouldn't do this because what I'm exposing is I'm old and I'm deaf. <laughs> I am going deaf. Um, okay, very good. Uh, all excellent answers, but not what we're going to... No, I'm kidding. <laughs> all of that fits under um, kind of the headings that I'm going to go through tonight. I'm going to talk about um, a few obligations that we have. I'll just um, um, walk through them. And the first one that I want to talk about is somewhat controversial. I shouldn't say it's controversial, but we get asked about this a lot. So, And there is going to be a test at the end tonight. Okay, so I'm going to give you some obligations of a, of a Christian, of a believer in the church. And um, I'm going to give you a passage that ties with it. And at the end, I'm going to want you to be able to know, for example, 
communion. Where would you go in the Bible to look at communion? First Corinthians. First Corinthians 11. I don't know why everybody's laughing because I'm deaf, but... So if you would, turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 11. We're going to talk about communion. One of the obligations of a member of the church is to celebrate communion. And I didn't hear anybody say that. I'm sure some of you came up with that. Um, Did you? Oh, teacher's pet over there looked at my notes on the way to church tonight. No, kidding. Um, 1 Corinthians 11. The obligation of believers is, somebody said, to be in church, right? To attend church, to fellowship in the church, to worship in the church, and a very key element of that, a specific element of that, is communion. And if you look at, starting in verse 23, I'm just going to read this passage. You've heard this a lot if you've been around Grace Church. How many of you have been at Grace Church, let's say, less than two years? Let me see your hands. Okay, wow, that's a lot. Very good. Okay. But... Um, hopefully you all have celebrated communion or the Lord's Supper. Let me read this. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And then verse 26 is interesting. Instead of describing something that took place with his disciples, he now says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, all of a sudden, we're looking at a command for the church. That this wasn't just something that Christ did with his disciples. It was. It was significant. But it was a pattern and a model that we were to follow as believers in the church. And the obligation of you and I as members of the church is that we celebrate communion together. Now, let me go back through those verses and pull out some principles. What is communion? Okay. And it says in verse 24, and when he had given thanks, communion is a time of thanksgiving together. As a church, it's a time of thanksgiving. When he had given thanks He broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Communion is a time of what? Remembrance. And what do we remember? We remember the work of Jesus Christ on the cross on our behalf. That Christ was born, lived a perfect life, and took on at the cross as he was murdered by his own creation. He allowed that to happen to take on our sin to provide us with redemption, salvation, and we remember that. So communion is serious. It's a time of remembrance. In the same way it says in verse 25, he took the cup also after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant, a new covenant. That means communion is also a time of celebration. We're no longer bound by the law. There's a new covenant with Christ because of the salvation that he gave us There's a new covenant in his blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And then verse 26, as I read, this is an ongoing event in the church. Communion is ongoing. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So that doesn't say how often the church is supposed to do it, does it? How many of you have been in churches where you do communion every week? Okay. How many of you um, have been in churches where it's more than once a month? Let's say that. Okay. At Grace Church, it's basically once a month. So let me ask you this. How many of you have ever prepared a light meal for 2,500 people? (laughs) Twice. Okay. With half hour in between. That's what happens at Grace Church um, on communion Sundays. And so the elders over the years um, and we, we talk about this in the new members class. It says, for often, as often as you do it. And we want to make sure you understand that that's how often we do it. And at Grace Church, there's a practical reality of why that's how often we do it. And we, do it, we used to do it at Grace Church in the evenings. And we realized not enough people were, had the opportunity 
um, to be there. So it was moved and almost exclusively in the morning services so that as many people as possible can be in obedience to Scripture. And so we have an obligation as believers. You should know when communion's happening, and you should be a part of communion. It's important. Because it's a time of thanksgiving together, remembrance, celebration, and we proclaim the Lord's death, it says. Did you see that at the end of verse 26? That means it's for believers only. We proclaim the Lord's death. We actually celebrate the Lord's death. Verse 27 says, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. We celebrate the murder of Jesus Christ because that resulted in what? Our salvation, our redemption. If you're not a believer, if we allow unbelievers to celebrate communion, they're celebrating the murder of Jesus Christ, and it means something entirely different, doesn't it? And just in case that's not serious enough for you, back in chapter 10, verse 21, it says, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. If you're not saved, you are celebrating the murder of Christ in the same way the demons celebrate that. And so that's why occasionally and often you'll hear a warning But if you're not a believer, in fact, that happened this past Sunday. If you're not a believer, let the plate go by. And why? Because it goes on to say in verse 28, but a man must examine himself. So communion is a time of self-examination. So we remember, we proclaim, we celebrate, and we examine ourselves. Verse 28 And there's an obligation. A man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. But if we judge ourselves rightly, we would be judged. So, you need to examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. But it goes beyond that, because the next verse says, Uh, But when we are judged, we are, what does it say? Disciplined by the Lord. Hebrews 12 tells us that the Lord disciplines who? Those whom he loves. And so that is an um, indication that we don't just examine to see if we're in the faith, but we're examining our hearts if there's unconfessed, unrepentant sin in our life. And that's why at Grace Church... It's a fairly quiet, I would say worshipful environment, although that's not fair. It could be louder and it could still be worshipful, but it's more of a somber event, wouldn't you say? It's a celebration in a quiet environment. Years ago, I had surgery and I had a contraption on my head and my neck, so I didn't want to come to Grace Church, so I went to a church out in Thousand Oaks for a few Sundays. I wanted to be a spectacle there where nobody knew me rather than a spectacle here where a few people knew me. And um, they had a tradition in their church that they celebrated communion every Sunday. And it was loud. I mean, they finished the sermon And the music started playing and people are singing. They go up to the front and they get their bread and their cup and they gather in circles and and they sing together, they pray together, and they take the bread and cup together. I absolutely loved it. And that's just an illustration of communion isn't done one way. I'm explaining to you why at Grace Church you see it the way we do it. If you can imagine the mayhem of 2,500 people going to get their own bread and cup and gathering in circles and praying and singing together, um, we would never leave, would we? And so the way we do it at Grace Church, we want to honor the purpose of communion while also being somewhat efficient about it. So if you come from a church that does it differently, that doesn't mean that church did it wrong. But we stick to the principles of 1 Corinthians 11. And the point here tonight is that you and I, it says as often as you do it. Well, we do it once a month. And the obligation you and I have is we need to do what we need to do to be in communion. 
okay? And by the way, you're never going to hear from an elder. You're not going to get a phone call saying, hey, we did a check. You haven't been here in the last two communion services. We can't do that. Can't keep track of everybody, but the Lord knows. And don't miss out on the time together to celebrate what Christ has done for you and for me and for that which unifies all of us. And that is that Jesus Christ is the son of the living God. And he gave us the church. And as a part of the church, he gave us communion. And our obligation in return is we need to enjoy it together. We need to go through that process together. You need to be in the church. You need to be in church, not just on communion Sundays, by the way. And you hear that a lot in foundation. Um, and I know a lot of you are busy serving, but don't miss out on, on the fellowship together in the main, main service. So communion, that's the first one. What, pass, what chapter in the Bible do you go to, to for communion? Okay, you're going to get better at that. I know you're looking at it. That was easy. All right, the second thing I want to talk about, if you turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, one book over, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, there is an obligation of believers to give their money to the church. Not all their money, okay, but to support the ministry of the church. And 2 Corinthians 8 is devastatingly confrontive in this manner, in this matter. I'll just read it to you. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God, which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. So we're talking about a region of the world called Macedonia. Then in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. That's almost poetic. And what it describes is a bunch of people that have nothing. So we learn right away there that giving is not a function of our ability to give. Okay, these people had nothing beyond um, their ability out of deep poverty and affliction with an abundance of joy and liberality. I testify, verse 3, that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord. And that one phrase, they gave of their own, own accord, I want to pause there and say this. What we're talking about when we talk about giving is private. This is between you and the Lord. This is a very important principle. And just so you know, at Grace Church, there is no way for me or anyone else to find out how much you give to the church. It's like a national secret around here. I don't know who it is that enters the giving. The only reason we have anybody do that is because the government requires it. But we firmly believe the principle here in 2 Corinthians 8, and we'll see it in 2 Corinthians 9, that you give of your own accord. That's why we avoid um, emotional presentations and, and uh, talking about giving all the time. You're probably hearing more about it now than you hear about it ever. We don't talk a lot about this in church because we believe that you give of your own accord. And look at verse 4. They don't give because of their ability. Verse 4 describes their motivation. They, beg, they begged us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. That's what Christians do. That's our obligation, is to have the perspective that we practically beg for the opportunity to support the ministry. You know, last Sunday after communion, we do this after communion um, a lot. There's a, there's a retiring offering for the deacons fund. And that's, that's an opportunity to give over and above for people in our church who can't make rent, who can't buy groceries, um, who need to pay um, for a doctor for their, their kids and they don't have the money. I don't know if you're aware of that. But that's what Grace Church does, and that is what you are participating in when you do that. I happened to be in second service last Sunday with my grandson. It was his first Sunday in main service by himself, and we were walking out, and I saw my friend Brian Biedebach. Everybody know Brian Biedebach? Well, he was acting as an usher last Sunday, and he had that basket for the deacon's fun, and he kept stepping in front of me. <laughs> and he says, oh, am I in your way? And I'm like, yeah. And he kept 
and I realized he needed money in the basket. <laughs> That's the strongest arm um, I've ever seen in terms of giving, and he got everything I had because I'm afraid of Brian Biedebach. <laughs> but the motivation is to participate in the ministry. That is a very tangible way um, to help people in the church that you will never meet. You'll never know them. But they know in this whole passage start, we want to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches. That's you. You are the grace of God. You are a trophy of God's grace, particularly when you participate in the ministry. So they, they begged us with much urging for the participation and the support of the saints, and this not as we expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. And you know, you can't outgive God. One chapter over in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. This talks about your giving. You give a little, you'll get a little. You give a lot, and the Lord multiplies that. That's, that's the word of God. And then verse 7, just to reinforce, each one must do just as he purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion. It is between you and the Lord. The Lord knows how much you give. The Lord knows whether it's out of abundance or it's out of need. And the Lord knows your motivation. And my encouragement to you is to understand that obligation before the Lord and to take that seriously. You won't answer to the elders for that or any other person here. And that shouldn't be a relief to you because who you do answer to is Jesus Christ, the head of the church, who has said that the obligation of believers in the church is to support the ministry. Okay? So, communion is in what chapter? That is really weak. Oh, it's on the screen even. Okay, enjoy that. We're going to get to the end, and it's not going to be on the screen. And then giving, 2 Corinthians 8. Third, the third obligation is fellowship. If you turn to Hebrews chapter 10, and fellowship is such a Christian word, right? Such a church word. And yet, here's an obligation. Now, celebrating communion, that's not a hard one. Giving, I understand that might be a hard one. The rest of the obligations we're going to look at tonight, they're hardly, you can hardly call them obligations. And fellowship is one of those. Hebrews chapter 10, and this is what you bring to the church. Hebrews 10, 23, just to walk through this pretty quickly. Verse 23 is, it can be anybody's life verse. Let us hold fast. The, uh, excuse me. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. When I say this is our life verse on your deathbed. Your goal should be to look back at your life and to say, with the writer of Hebrews, I held fast the confession of my hope without wavering. That's the goal of the Christian life. And it takes effort on your part, but it is also because of Christ, for he who promises faithful. And how do we do that? How can I help you Come to the end of your life and be able to say that. How can you help each other do that? Well, verse 24 answers that. It says, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. That word stimulate means encouragement, provocation, and irritation. Do I irritate you? I'm biblical. The idea is that we are to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. That is pure fellowship. And what does that mean? Well, in Ephesians chapter 2, that great passage, verses 1 through 10, is the gospel presentation. If you've never looked at it that way, I encourage you to look at that. It starts off with, and you are dead in your trespasses and sins. And then it gets to verse 4, and it says, but God... And it says, because of his mercy and his great love made us alive together with Christ. Even when we are dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. And then then that passage ends. I mean, it talks about it's grace. It's not you. 
Christ did it for you. It's not based on who you are or what you've done. And then at verse 10, it tells you why you're saved. It says this, for we are his workmanship. I know you know this verse, created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works, which he created beforehand that we would walk in them. It's already ordained the good works. And what Hebrews 10, 24 is saying is that in the church, we are to stimulate one another to that love and those good deeds. Okay? And how do we do that? Where does that stimulation happen? Verse 25, it's in the church. That's right. That famous verse that we heard a lot about in 2020, not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. That's that stimulation all over again. Encourage one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. See, what happens in the church doesn't happen anywhere else. You stimulate me to love and good deeds. You stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Each of you are stimulated by being with believers towards love and good deeds. That's the sign of a healthy church. That's why you can't not go to church. There is an obligation in the church to fellowship. Acts chapter 2, we're not going to look at it, but the day the church is born is described in Acts chapter 2, and in verses 37 to 47, it describes their fellowship. They sang together. They worshiped together. They gave. They were generous to each other. They were humble They were in awe of God's miracles, and you say, oh, that's nice, but there's no miracles anymore. Yes, there are. If you come Sunday nights and you watch communion services, there's at least three every Sunday night miracles being described. Christ taking away the heart of stone and putting in a heart of flesh, that's a miracle. And part of being in fellowship together is we're in awe together of what Christ is doing. In our life and in the lives of others, there's unity. And it talks about house to house, breaking bread together. So if you ever wondered why Christians go along or food and church go together, it started at the day of Pentecost. It's fellowship. Spend time with believers, being stimulated to love and good deeds, stimulating others to love and good deeds. And that is fun, isn't it? I know you enjoy that because you're in foundation. And we see it happen every Friday night and even outside of Friday nights. Okay? Fourth. The fourth obligation is to serve. To serve. And if you would, turn to First Peter chapter 4. There's a lot of passages we could look at. We're going to look at First Peter 4 first, verses 10 and 11. We're going to talk about spiritual gifts. A couple of you mentioned that when I said, what are the obligations of believers in the church? And you said to use your spiritual gifts. That is absolutely true. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 12.1, Paul says, now concerning spiritual gifts, I do not want you to be unaware. Okay, and 1 Corinthians 12 talks in depth about spiritual gifts. And we're going to talk about that, but we're going to talk about it in not so much detail. Verse 10 of 1 Peter 4 says, as each one has received a gift. What is that gift? Well, you and I were saved. That's a gift, isn't it? But also, 1 Corinthians 12, 11, again, says that the Holy Spirit works all these things, and it's after a long passage talking about spiritual gift. The Holy Spirit works all these things, distributing to each individual as he wills. When you were saved, you received the hope of of eternal life, eternity with Jesus Christ. But you also received the gift of a a spiritual gift that would allow you to serve in the church in a unique way. Every single one of you received a gift from the Holy Spirit. What do you do with that? Well, 1 Peter 4.10 makes it clear. As each one has received a gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. That is a loaded verse. 
We could spend a lot of time talking about that. But there's a couple principles. You are a steward. You have been given a gift. And if you sit on that gift and don't use it, you are failing in your stewardship. And you're missing out. The Holy Spirit gave you a gift. And you're to use it in serving one another. Not in trying to gain position or authority in the church. Those spiritual gifts are given to you so that you can serve other people in the church. Now let's flip that around. You are in a room with maybe almost 200 people here who have been given gifts to serve you. That is the amazing picture of the church. And all of that to the glory of God. And it goes on to say, whoever speaks as one speaking the oracles of God, whoever serves as one serving by the strength which God supplies. There's two kinds of gifts. There's the speaking gifts, preaching, teaching, encouraging, exhorting. There's the serving gifts, helping, giving, administration, showing mercy. And there's long lists of, you can dig into this in great depth in 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12. But we'll leave it as Peter describes it that we use these gifts so that in all things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to whom belongs the glory and might forever and ever. Those gifts are not used to enhance your career success. Those gifts are given to you to use in the church for the benefit of others and the building up of the church. And, And for that, just turn back to Ephesians 4 and we'll look at this quickly. Ephesians chapter 4, very important passage on the issue of service. I'm going to start in verse 7. To each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. So that little... Verse 8 kind of is a header for an outline for the next several verses. Verses 9 and 10 deals with the angels, okay? Or ascending on high, leading a host of captives. And then starting in verse 11, he begins to describe and to expand what it means he gave gifts to men. And I'll just give you um, um, the bottom line here. Every single one of you is a gift. The church is a gift. All of you together is a gift. God gives gifts to men. Isn't that amazing? There's a theme throughout what we're looking at that God is gracious towards us. In verse 11, it says he gave some as apostles and some as prophets. And let me stop there and just address the question that we get asked a lot. Are there apostles and prophets today? And the answer is no. Ephesians 2.20, if you want to look over there, that the church, well, let me start in verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. Does that sound like Second Peter or 1 Peter 2.9 that I read to you? We're no longer strangers and aliens, but we are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. There's 1 Timothy 3. You see the terms that are being used to describe the church. So we're the household of God. Verse 20, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. They were the gifts to the church at the beginning. And it goes on to say, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fit together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. That verse covers the past. Apostles and prophets, the present, Christ, who's building the building, being fit together, and then the future growing into a holy temple into the Lord. That's the description of the church. That's context. That answers the question that when we look at verse 11, and it says he gave some as apostles and some as prophets, that's history, and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints. Why 
Were those people given to you and I to equip you and I? And why are, what are we being equipped for? For the work of what? You see it? For the work of service. We have an obligation to serve. Why? For the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. The church is being built. The church is built through your service, through your growth. And it goes on to say in verse 15, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of every single one of you, each individual part. It causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Here's the amazing thing. Christ said in Matthew 16 that he was going to build his church, and he describes in Ephesians 4 that the way that happens is that you and I, we sit under the preaching and teaching of the word, we're equipped for service, and then we serve. And through our service to one another, we build up the church. Christ is building his church, and he's using you. And he's using me. And by the way, I don't say any of this by any measure to foundation as any form of rebuke. I say this as encouragement. Foundation has a reputation at Grace Church as being a group that serves Grace Church. Grateful for you. Keep on keeping on. Okay? It's an obligation we have is to serve because of our great love for Christ and for the building up of the body of Christ. Okay? So, communion, giving, fellowship, service, and lastly, and we could say a whole bunch more, but the other obligation of believers in the church is to pray for one another. To pray for one another. And remember, communion's in 1 Corinthians 11. Don't look at the screen. Giving is where? 2 Corinthians 8. Good. Fellowship. Hebrews 10, Acts 2, you could say that too. Service? Oh, it's getting worse. I'm really glad you're not looking at the screen like I told you. But uh, come on, 1 Peter 4 and Ephesians 4, maybe remember the 4. And then prayer. Now, if you you can look at the screen now. Prayer for the saints. There's all kinds of books of the Bible there you see. And I'm going to go through this pretty quickly. I'm not going to take you every single passage, but I want you to understand that you and I are to be praying for each other. We have an obligation to hold each other up in prayer. And, and I, I want to lay out for you that you can pray for me and I can pray for you without knowing any of your prayer requests. You can pray for the people of Grace Church without knowing what their specific needs are. You can pray for Pastor John. You can pray for Mark Zakovich. You can pray for a fellowship group at Grace Church. You can pray for Christians around the world because the Bible lays out the pattern. Paul, at the beginning of each of these books, says, I am praying for you, and this is what I'm praying for you. And you you may not know this, but the elders at Grace Church meet nine times a month. One is a meeting on a Thursday night, and you're all welcome to come to that, by the way. The other eight times are twice on Sundays. We get together before the first service, and we pray for Grace Church. And we pray for whoever's preaching, and we pray for what's going on here. And then Sunday evenings, before the evening service, the elders get together again to pray for Grace Church. Do we know all the needs at Grace Church? We don't. But we do know how Paul modeled prayer. And I just want you to listen to this. In Ephesians 1, see, at the beginning of these letters, Paul expresses his love for the church, and he says, this is how I'm praying for you. Listen to how he prays. And this is how you and I can pray for each other. We have an obligation to pray for each other. We don't have the out of saying, well, I don't know John MacArthur, so I don't know how to pray for John MacArthur. Or I don't know everybody in foundation, so I don't know how to pray for them. Here's how you pray for them. He says, I do not cease. I'm looking in Ephesians 1, 15 to 17. Do not cease giving thanks for you. 
be thankful for each other while mentioning you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. How fantastic would it be if we knew that we were all praying for each other for that? Philippians 1, 8 to 10, he prays that their love would abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment so that they would approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless before God. You can pray for the people of Grace Church, for the people of Foundation. Colossians 1, 9 to 10. For this reason, since the day we heard of it, and what he heard of is their love for each other. We have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. It's a mouthful. You can pray for each other that we would be filled with the knowledge of his will. How many of us wish we knew God's will all the time? Pray for each other in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects. Pray for the people of foundation that as we go from here, that we would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. That's how we pray for each other. That's our obligation. That the people of foundation, that you and I would please him in all respects, that we would bear fruit in every good work and increase in the knowledge of God. What a prayer, right? These are prayers that I think God answers among the church. Second Thessalonians 1, 11 to 12, he prays for the church at Thessalonica that God would count um, you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power. Get this, so that the name of our Lord would be glorified in you and you would be glorified in him. That's the church. Pray for each other. And then Philemon, finally, Philemon chapter, well, verse six, fellowship. I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. Those are just examples of how we should be praying for each other. So we have some obligations. Yes, we we know that the church is the bride of Christ, it's the body of Christ, it's the beauty of Christ, and it is the gift from Christ. And because of that gift and because of our obligation We need to be together celebrating communion. We need to give. We need to fellowship. We need to serve. And we have an obligation to be praying for each other. Okay, now we go to the next screen. Ha ha. (laughs) Test time. Service. Where do you find? First Peter 4 and Ephesians 4. Okay, I hear nervous laughter. <laughs> Giving. <laughs> yes, 2 Corinthians 8. Okay, first couple of verses of 2 Corinthians 8. Communion. You got that one. Yeah, we got that one. Good, 1 Corinthians 11. And then prayer for the saints. You can go through the beginning of... Most of Paul's letters, and just look on your own time. This is your homework. I really want you to go through and to read how Paul prays for the people that he loves in those churches and pray that prayer for the people of Grace Church. And if you don't love the people of Grace Church, that's one way to develop a love for the people of Grace Church. And if you do love the people of Grace Church, it's a way to deepen it. Pray for one another. Let me close this in prayer. Lord, thank you so much for the gifts that you give to men. Thank you for everybody in this room. Every single person in this room who's a part of Grace Church is a gift. Lord, I'm so grateful for Grace Church and for the picture that it is of all of this. Lord, help us to be obedient as we celebrate your death and resurrection on a regular basis by celebrating communion together. Lord, help us to be faithful to support the ministry 
in the means and manner that you have uh, com- have commanded us, that we might be like the Macedonians in Second Corinthians 8. Lord, help us to enjoy the fellowship together, to stimulate one another, to love and good deeds, to your praise and your glory, to be stimulated by others, to come to church with that expectation that we would, lo- we, we would leave church more effective for having been together and fellowshipping together or give that purpose to our fellowship. Lord, help us to be faithful in our service. Thank you for the people of Foundation who are reputable in this area at Grace Church. Lord, help them to excel still more, to enjoy that, to grow in that. And for those in this room who have never considered that they're needed and that they need to serve, Lord, give them opportunity. Give them the motivation to do that. And finally, Lord, help us to be faithful in praying for each other. Lord, we do all of this. Yes, they are obligations, but they are what we want to do because we love you and we want to be obedient. And we want to participate in seeing the church grow. Thank you for the church. Thank you for such a great salvation in the time we have tonight. In Christ's name, amen.